It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this might be a little confusing to those of you that listened to episode nine on Monday. Uh, Episode nine did not record. And so I am going to call this episode nine, lest we confuse everyone since there's a missing episode now in our Daily Thunder series. But for all practical purposes, if you just look through the numbers, you're not going to see one missing. So unless you hear what I'm saying right now. So uh, episode number nine on on Monday was a transitionary uh, message as far as time period where we were exiting the 20s and entering the 30s. And we are literally going to exit the 20s with a crash and a cloud of dust. Uh, The roaring 20s, where we're literally going to double uh, our economic strength in this nation. We are tremendously successful at that time. The stock market is bloated and fat and fatter than it should be. And a lot of people are buying stocks on what's called margin, which means they are leveraging their life to get stocks. And as long as those stocks go up in value, everything goes great. But the banks are also leveraging themselves to lend money so that these people can buy stocks. So in the stock market, uh, there's this massive uh, bulge uh, of value. And when it crashes in uh, late of 1929, it is literally going to undo our nation economically. And at the time, we were the leader in the economy of the world because we had uh, taken over that position at the, uh, in and through the process of World War I. And so when we went down, well, sort of the whole world uh, began to crash uh, economically. And this is going to lead to something known as the Great Depression. And the Great Depression doesn't just affect us here in America. It actually affects a lot of nations of the world. And so other nations are going to become very, very vulnerable in this time. Let me mention one of them, Germany. And in Germany, because of the disorder, because of the financial crisis, remember, they've gone through a lot of things. They just lost World War I back in 1919. The Treaty of Versailles is going to be signed. And so they've had a rough decade. And now economic troubles to boot. They really want a strong man. They are vulnerable for someone to come in with a heavy hand and just solve the problem. 1933, you're going to have Hitler arrive on the scene. And we are in a very vulnerable situation as well, where we are actually potentially vulnerable to a similar type of situation. Because when you're in a crisis, you really want someone to get you out of that crisis. And you will trade in liberties, you will trade in all sorts of things to get something that just gives you stability. And so, whereas Germany is gonna go in a very strong direction one way, America is vulnerable to that. And so I'm gonna do a quick review because it's sort of hard for me to say, hey, if you missed uh, the last session, which didn't record, you guys heard it, those of you in this room. So we have a little special uh, thing that we can cherish together. But for the sake of everyone else, I'll, I'll do a quick review. So this message is called, uh, The Man I'm Not Supposed to Like. Uh, I, I'm not going to get into it just yet, but it's sort of a fun title. A very long title, mind you. I mean, so you can just imagine what this is going to look like in the Daily Thunder podcast. Episode one, 1003, colon... The man I'm not supposed to like, double slash, uh, spiritual lessons from black and white America, 09, parentheses, Eric Ludy. It's like, wow, that is one long title. But, you know, every now and then a long title is just, you know, worth it. You know, and you just want to throw one in. So this one is the one I'm throwing in. So the missing episode, it was so good we couldn't release it. No, that's not the real reason we, uh, we couldn't release it. It actually didn't record properly. So we have the first four minutes and 20 seconds of it and nothing else. And so we decided not to release the first four minutes and 20 seconds, which I think was a review anyways, so that wouldn't have helped anyone. So previously on Daily Thunder, the episode you can't get now, uh, we talked about the summer of fun in July 1929. The Roaring 20s is going to lead to such a lunacy, such a craziness, where people are flagpole sitting, they're doing their dance marathons. Some of them are even dying because they'll dance and dance and dance until they fall over. And some people even fall over dead. I mean, it is one of the weirdest seasons. The longest dance marathon was 145 days. Who can dance the longest? Well, who in the right mind wants to spend 145 days dancing? And you had to dance at least 45 minutes out of every hour with your partner. 
One of you has to be dancing. So the other one can sleep while the other one's dancing. I mean, I, it just, it's hard for me to even comprehend how anyone could get into this, but just imagine what is happening, and this is going to spread into the Great Depression, too. The dance marathon idiocy is going to continue, and one of the reasons is, is they're going to offer a lot of money for anyone who would do this, and people are in very bad straits financially, so they will risk everything in their life, not work, but try and win the prize, and so they will actually expend their health to try and win that prize. I mean, it's a very, it's sad and very odd and intriguing at the same time. But that's the summer of fun, which is going to end with the crash, the stock market crash in August 1929. And this is going to lead to what we can call a crisis in our nation, one of the greatest crises we've ever had. Now, we've had crises. The revolution uh, with, with Great Britain, uh, was a huge crisis, right? But then, and we're going to have War of 1812, we're going to have the Civil War, we have crises. It's not that we haven't faced crises. World War I is a crisis for our nation, it really is. Uh, and we had uh, various scares in the process. This is a major thing that's going to affect every single American. You could not escape it. And uh, the economy, that, you know, with so many banks that are going to crash, what did I say uh, on Monday? Over $7 billion worth of financial assets are going to be evaporated when these banks close. And so this is like your money, just gone, uh, because of a bank having overlent to people on margin. And it's a very odd thing to experience, and that's going to lead to a 10-year crisis that we understand as the Great Depression. So we're going to go into that period over these upcoming episodes. So I'm just giving a summary right now. Uh, th then in 1930, as if we didn't have enough challenge already, we're going to have a drought hit this country. It's going to especially hit the Midwest. And with gusting winds, this drought is going to create a problem, a problem that we had set ourselves up for without realizing it. And that is that we had tilled the territory of the Great Plains with an expectation that if we tilled the soil, rain would come. And it's a misnomer, it's not actually how you get rain, is but just by tilling soil. In a, a semi-arid territory, you actually, you know, don't usually get rain. And they had this thought that if they tilled it, rain would follow the plow, and it didn't. And that still has been proven true throughout history, that that isn't how you get rain, is just by plowing the earth. And so we're going to till up the earth, and this is going to create all the topsoil, loose topsoil. And so when the winds start blowing in that drought, we're going to have the Dust Bowl. And this is all happening simultaneously. It's a disastrous uh, season in American history that is covered with dust. For 10 years, we have dust flying around. I mean, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions just uh, of topsoil, pounds of topsoil are going to be distributed across the country, literally on barges in the Atlantic Ocean will be covered with it. Homes will be covered with, with silt constantly, food. A lot of people are going to become sick because of this dust problem in our country. And uh, so that's the cloud of dust in 1930. Imagine just th those 10 years. It's called the Dirty 30s. Uh, that's, that's just tough. It's, it's, you know, when you think about, it sounds depressing, and it's called the Great Depression. I mean, you could just imagine the, the emotional tenor of our nation in this time. And so there is something that is happening in this time which is going to change the course of our country. Now, if you were to hear me say that we were vulnerable and rife for an Adolf Hitler type, then you will applaud and appreciate everything that is going to happen in the 30s because we didn't go that way, but we did go with radical change, which if you're a conservative can really sort of get you riled when you think back at it. We're like, what did we do? You know, we changed everything. We lost something that was very precious in this country. And so that's, that's what sort of a premise for this uh, message. So the election, November 1932. So... Uh, Hubert Hoover had just been elected president before the stock market crash. So the stock market crash was, uh, you know, after he had been uh, inaugurated, what, seven months or so, uh, maybe six months after. That's a rough way to start your presidency. And it wasn't really his fault that we had a stock market crash. He's inheriting a bulging economy. I mean, so it's not really his fault. But when you are the president, you get blamed for what happens during your presidency, whether fairly or unfairly. Sometimes you get credit for what happens in your uh, presidency, whether fairly or unfairly, too. And this is a huge election. So Herbert, 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 
Sorry, guys. It is sort of a hard name to say a lot. You know, I think it a lot, but I don't always have to say it. Herbert Hoover uh, is the classic conservative. He is the guy that, you know, all of us are supposed to like. Now, remember the name of this message? The man I'm not supposed to like. So Paul Dixon, I'm going to give some background here. The causes of the crash and the causes of the depression were interrelated and followed the same path forward. By 1932, stocks were, were worth only about a fifth of what they had been worth during the summer of 1929, and July 8th, 1932 turned out to be the lowest point of the crash. It is often argued that 1932 was the year the nation hit rock bottom. Now, what's happening in 1932? We have a presidential election. So everything is going to hit rock bottom. It was already bad in 1929. And it only got worse in 1930. And then it even got worse in 1931. But, I mean, it can't get any worse. And Hoover is a financial genius. And this guy can't seem to solve the problem. And so in 1932, right as the election is approaching, we have serious issues. We're going to hit what is going to be considered by many to be the lowest point. And so July 8th, 1932, turned out to be the lowest point of the crash. It is often argued that 1932 was the year the nation hit rock bottom. Exactly 2,998 banks had failed and 28,285 businesses had closed just in the year 1931. And in 1932, they were still closing at an alarming rate. So if you're living in America in this time and you're seeing the collapse and you're seeing that your president's policies are doing nothing to change it, what is your vulnerability going to be too? Well, if I could call it a vulnerability, what is your desire? You desire change. You desire something to intervene, something to alter the course of this downward spiral, because this is greatly affecting every American. Paul Dixon continues, unemployment had soared to 25%. That's one in four people is out of a job. One in four working families did not have uh, a paycheck coming in, leaving one family in four without a breadwinner, and millions were underemployed, taking pay cuts and reductions in hours to keep their jobs. Two million people, including many farmers, were turned into homeless migrants who wandered the country in a random and futile quest for work. Many settled in teeming communities of makeshift shacks and shanties known derisively as Hoovervilles. That's derisively because Hubert Hoover... Her, Herbert Hoover was the president at the time, and they're blaming. They're blaming their problems on Hoover, mocking the president who kept trying to tell the country that things were not as bad as they seemed and that recovery was around the corner. If you're living in a Hooverville and they keep saying it's not as bad as it seems, it's like you're living in la-la land, president. You're not living where the common man is living. So the man I'm supposed to like... For every, all practical purposes, if I start breaking down Hoover, Hoover's, I'm just going to call him Hoover. How about that? His first name seems to be messing me up. If we break down Hoover's policies, you're going to see that he's a classic conservative. And there's so many things in my political mindsets, the way I think you know, the economy should be handled, the way I think states' rights and national rights, the size of government, all these things. It's like, yeah, I, I agree with Hoover. I lean in that direction. And yet, it's going to sound strange. Well, I'm going to give you a picture of Herbert Hoover. I, did you hear how well I said that? Uh, and he's a good, strong guy. This is one of those guys that you look to, and he's just like, like a rock. I mean, he is, boom, just solid. And he's not moving anywhere, and he has is such confidence. You could call it arrogance, but we won't, right? And he's just, he's a stalwart, strong character, just like a bulldog. And hey, maybe this is the guy to do it. However, his track record isn't showing very well. This guy has been in office throughout this whole time, and he has not been able to do one thing to touch the issue. And some people actually believe he wasn't even trying to do anything. And there's a part truth and a part lie in that. He was doing a lot. But part of his mentality is it's not government's place to intervene in personal finance of everyone in our nation. Ironically, that's something I would hold to. And he didn't feel that the national government should intervene, should start just this massive welfare state to start bailing everyone out. Isn't it funny? This is like we're all vulnerable to being Hooverites. It's like, yeah, that's some good logic there, Herbert. He believed in something called rugged individualism. You deal with it yourself. Hey, work together as a, as a neighborhood, you know, whatever you can do. But as the federal government, I would be doing you a disservice if I started bailing everything out. 
because that's not having you take personal responsibility for your situation. It's like, huh, well, you know what? He has some, he has some good thoughts there. And yet when I look at Hoover, I don't really like the guy. It's funny, he has the policies that I would lean towards, and yet I don't really like him as a man. You know, when I'm studying, it was like, yeah, he's just sort of harsh and stern and mean, and even though he may be right, it's, it's a really hard one to even evaluate back, looking back in history. It's like, would it have been better to keep Hoover? I don't know. That's a really wild question for those of us that like alternate histories. So then there's a man I'm not supposed to like, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. When you're a conservative, he's, their he's the liberals' champion, guys. You're not supposed to like him. It's just rule number one when you, when you look at you know, American history, you have to look at Franklin Delano Roosevelt and recognize that's the author of the New Deal. That's when we went off the gold standard. That's when everything went south. This is when we lost you know, our compass as a nation. This is when we began to slide decidedly liberal. So here's, here's what's interesting. I'm supposed to like Hoover, and I really don't. I'm supposed to not like Roosevelt, and to say that I like Roosevelt is very dangerous, right? Because that would cause you to think I like his policies. I don't like his policies. I, I don't. But he's strangely attractive in another regard to me. Like, I like him. And I know I'm not supposed to. And there's a lot of things about Franklin Roosevelt that are not attractive to me at all. There's a lot of decisions. I know a lot about Roosevelt, by the way. I did a whole series on World War II. I had a lot of Roosevelt in that. I could tell you his foibles. I could tell you his weaknesses. I could tell you his leanings. I could tell you a lot about him. And yet there's something about him that I think is admirable. And I, I like, but here's the point. Remember this whole series called Spiritual Lessons from Black and White America? In this time period, we began to get so dogged and dogmatic that you had to hate someone that was on the opposite side of the ledger from you. You couldn't like them and just not like their policies. You had to hate them because of their policies. That ideology is actually rampant in our culture today still. And I would say you could go back right here. I'm not saying it didn't exist before this, but we are going to have a sharp divide in our country right here in this election. And it is going to splinter in two different factions. Our nation is going to be strongly opposed one to the other based on policy of how we run a government. So the man I'm not supposed to like, his name is Franklin Delano Roosevelt, there's a picture of him, by the way, for those of you that have never seen uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Fascinating character. I mean, even his history is very interesting. So he, has, he suffers from uh, an ailment. He actually has a disability. It's the first and maybe the only, I'm not exactly sure if there's any statement since then, of a president with a disability. This man has a disability. He didn't grow up with a disability. When he was 39, he began to uh, contract these symptoms, which he very likely has, had had for a while before, just they had never shown themselves. And he ends up with partial paralysis in his legs. And he is going to spend the rest of his life in a wheelchair. And at the time, I mean, look at what polio, I have it on the screen, but polio, there's another name for it, infantile paralysis. If you're going to be diagnosed with something and you're a big head honcho political machine guy, how embarrassing would it be to be diagnosed with infantile paralysis? And that's what he has, but he doesn't want anyone to know it. And so he is, he is dealing with a tremendous, I know this sounds strange to us because of the way that many of you view disabilities is a lot healthier than the way we have in American history. And, but if you you know, just think of your relationship with disabilities. It's interesting because we have a tendency to say this is normal and anything that is not in the normal category is just odd. And we develop a different perspective towards, or, uh, towards it or a different relationship towards it. He felt that. So he comes from a very wealthy family. I mean, the Roosevelt lineage is quite impressive. Theodore Roosevelt is like a distant uncle to him, but still a mentor. They're actually, they, they know each other well. And so we have Roosevelt's in the lineage of American history already, and very wealthy, well-to-do family. He's a very athletic child, 
and then something at the age of 39 is going to alter the direction of his life. And it's something known as polio. And it is a, not just a physical ailment, but just imagine what this is going to do to him mentally, socially, and how he is going to relate to people now. Because when you are tall, strong, athletic, and good-looking, you have a tendency to have a greater strength and confidence in how you present yourself. And one of the things I'm intrigued by this man, about this man, is that he is going to actually, though at first be hit hard by this polio, he is going to leverage this polio in a profound way into a great strength in his life. So question for all of us, does polio make for a stronger or a weaker president? Now, this was a huge issue back in this election. And I, I, I want you to sort of honestly assess that. If someone is in a wheelchair, does that make them stronger or weaker for the challenges that will face something known as a presidency? Presidency, anyone who has walked through it, which isn't that many of us in this room, right? We haven't been president of the United States, so we can't really speak personally about it. Uh, I think uh, Abraham Lincoln had a quote about it being hell on earth. Uh, and, but most, most men would say, you know, they, they age. If you've ever watched presidents and you see a picture before and after their presidency, yeah, it might just be four to eight years, but they will age like 20 to 30 years in that time. The weights that are upon a president are so excruciating and so challenging. And so it's reasonable to ask the question, can a man who has a disability and who is in a wheelchair actually carries such weights as that. You see, remember, this is like the beginnings of what we could call the John Wayne era. Now, we had already been in it, we just didn't have a name for it yet, because John Wayne hadn't yet fully emerged in his John Wayne-ness. But John Wayne, like the Marlboro Man, is going to become a picture of something that Americans respect. It's the self-made, rugged individual. It's the guy who can overcome. It's the guy who doesn't need anything. He's self-sufficient. This is Americanism in a nutshell. And so a guy in a wheelchair doesn't quite say it. Doesn't quite say what we're looking for. Our president is supposed to show it, too. And so this becomes a huge tension for Roosevelt, who senses after this recovery period that he is going to actually pursue politics again. And he's going to attempt to hide the fact that he's in a wheelchair for the very reason that most people in America wouldn't understand that someone like that could carry any weights. So does polio make for a stronger or a weaker president? In late 1932, it was definitely a stigma. So there are three pictures of him, as far as I know, three pictures of him in a wheelchair. And there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of pictures of this man, right? He was the president of the United States in an age where media was a huge deal. There's only three pictures of him in a wheelchair. Isn't that fascinating? This is one of them. So you guys are looking at a pretty special picture there. Matthew Pressman, it was a Time Magazine article, says, Roosevelt took great pains to hide the effects of the disease from voters, instituting a gentleman's agreement with the press that he not be photographed in ways that would highlight his disability. Amy Barish from an article, FDR and Polio, wrote, in January 1922, FDR was fit with braces that locked in at the knee and continued the length of his leg. And by the spring of that year, he could stand with assistance. FDR made a plan that one day he would walk the length of his driveway, which was a quarter mile long. Although he never accomplished the task, he used it as a training procedure, working himself to the bone in hopes that he would be able to walk again if he continued exercising. This would be one of those things. If you had a movie about this, it would have like, it would be like one of those training montages, like Rocky, you know, where the music is playing and, uh, and, and you're going to see Roosevelt doggedly determined that he is going to walk a quarter mile down his driveway. And he never did, but he is going to daily like go after it. And you can just sort of see it in the, in the, in, in the uh, mental picture, the movie picture in our mind, he's going to fall over and you'll see him with agony on his face, tears streaming down, but he's going to get up and he's going to keep going. And to me, I, I really like that sort of thing because one of the things I know about leadership, though I've never led a nation, is I know how hard it is and I know how easy it is to 
just sort of go into the fetal position and uh, you know, suck your thumb and just say, I can't handle this, I can't handle this, I can't handle this. It takes a lot to not crumple in the midst of strain and to maintain your poise and to stand firm and to say, I know my God is in control and to actually weather those challenges without falling to pieces. And so this is, when I see something like this, I go, now that's the sort of thing that makes for a great leader. Ironically, most people would just see a man who can't walk a quarter mile. But walking a quarter mile is not actually what makes a great leader. It's a man who will keep trying to walk a quarter mile that impresses me. If he doesn't have leg strength and he can't even hardly walk even one step and he's going to go after a quarter mile day in, day out, huh, circle that, guys. That's something special. That will change the world. Amy Barish continues and says, due to his bright personality, FDR insisted that he be surrounded by good cheer throughout this rehab process. He was known for exercising constantly, even when he was surrounded by friends. He would often have people watch him and provide company as he exercised and would carry out a conversation with them despite devoting all his efforts to moving. Good strategy. Surround yourself with good cheer instead of people that are like, oh, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. But to actually have laughter around you, to have a perspective of triumph around you. Eh, interesting. Hoover versus Roosevelt. Hoover, change nothing. Roosevelt, change everything. Doesn't it scare you guys uh, to think of someone like Roosevelt getting into the presidency, presidency, change everything? Whoa! That is the opposite direction of what we like as Americans, especially conservative Americans, which is like, look, we started out with a great constitutional republic, we have something wonderful, let's keep it. And if we're going to return to strength, what we as conservatives always think of is going back in time. Not forward, back. We want to go back to strength. And so what you see with Hoover is the, hey, let's maintain what has always made America great, and let's not alter it because we're in a crisis right now. So it does not mean that you don't make adjustments and you don't you know, do what is necessary to make the country work, but what Hoover is going to translate as is change nothing. That's what it sounds like, is, hey, we're fine, guys. Everything's fine. Yeah, we're in a disaster right now, and everyone's out of work, and banks are closing all over the place. When FDR, well, I don't want to give anything away. I'm not, I didn't say anything. Uh, I didn't say anything. Let's just keep going. Hoover is change nothing. Roosevelt is willing to change everything. I don't care what it takes, says Roosevelt. We'll change whatever it takes to make sure that this nation stabilizes. Okay, so you can imagine how this is going to sharply divide people. So here's a, uh, a, a poster. Likely, my guess is that this was done way after the fact, like even in the recent times. But what you're going to see is on the left, you see a Hoover, and on the right, you see Roosevelt. Now, look at the symbols that both of them get. You know, to the other side, Hoover looks like Nazism, and Roosevelt looks like communism. This is how they are portrayed. Now, Hoover was not a fascist Nazi Hitler supporter. And Roosevelt was not a Stalin communist supporter. But to the conservative, Roosevelt looks like he's communist. And to the liberal, Hoover looks like he's fascist. And I don't know if you guys have seen something very similar in the recent past, but where we have extremities of how we view things because that's our political lens. It's called dogmatism, where we can only see evil, we cannot see anything virtuous. Kim Phillips Fine said this, in Germany, Adolf Hitler was sworn in as chancellor. In the United States, some people, including the publisher William Randolph Hearst, wondered whether America was in need of a similar strongman. Hoover versus Roosevelt. So Hoover believed in financial independence. No, 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 we don't get individuals connected with governmental money. We don't give loans as a government. We don't bail people out. We don't create welfare. We actually want to do the exact opposite. We want to train a guy how to fish so he can catch his own fish, right? We don't want to give a guy fish for the rest of his life, and then he never learns how to fish. I mean, this is like, this is classic conservatism, guys. This is like literally what you guys probably grew up on. I mean, you were sucking your thumb on that. 
And that's Hoover. Now look at Roosevelt, financial interdependence. We need to work together, governments and people, government and businesses, government and banks, and we will stabilize this. Now that has alarms going off in every conservative's mind because that, that could mean big government. Uh-huh, it could, and it's going to. This is actually the advent of what we could call big government in America. Hoover versus Roosevelt, rugged individualism versus share the wealth. And of course, share the wealth just sounds like communism to all of us. I mean, you have to admit. But if you have a whole bunch of money over here and there's a whole bunch of starving people over there, it's like, hey, uh, what are you guys going to do over here to help the starving people over here? We're a nation. Let's work together. And though that smacks of what we would call socialism, you at least can understand the mindset if you remove the politics from it. It's like, yeah, if, if there was... A few of us in here that had a lot, and then there were some that were literally outside on the streets living under a bridge because they didn't have anything. Well, then we would probably appeal in here going, hey, guys, we need to do something to help the people under the bridge. And then, you know, the people that have a lot could say, hey, don't tax me. You see, we, this is a problem we've had in our country for a long time of how do we deal with the global country? How do we deal with our ills in a way that protects the essence of our country at the same time, actually helps people. Hoover versus Roosevelt. So think about this. This is, this is how it would have been perceived. Stalwart, strong, somewhat scary, that's Hoover, versus wheelchair-bound weakling. So this is how the Hoover camp, the Hoover camp, of course, wouldn't want to say somewhat scary, but this is like what you're dealing with as a voter. You're like, wait a minute here. But Roosevelt actually seems like he's willing to do something. Hoover is just saying, hey, you know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and figure it out. This is America. We've given you opportunity. Take it. James McClafferty, who was Ho Herbert Hoover's congressional liaison, said this. What is Roosevelt thinking about when he allows himself to aspire to that office? When I see a man of Hoover's physical and mental power, almost groggy from the blows that rain upon him, I cannot make myself believe otherwise than that the election of Roosevelt to the presidency would be a crime against the nation. Kim Phillips Fine said it this way, many in Hoover's circle had been eager to see their man face the New York governor in the election of 1932. So Roosevelt was the New York governor. And so in Hoover's circles, they were very eager to see Hoover against a man in a wheelchair. It's like, oh, we got, this is slam dunk believing that FDR's partial paralysis rendered him obviously incapable of fulfilling the duties of the presidency. So up to this point, now you have to recognize, the way I'm presenting this, I'm a lot harder on conservatives in what we've been going through in this series than I am on the liberals. I, I'm, granted, I'm even, I would even acknowledge that, because part of it for me is I'm trying not to uh, just overlook things that are, are wrong, I'm wanting to have the heart of Christ towards those that think different than me. That's the key for me. That's part of this series is we have some baggage in this country, which makes it very, very difficult for us to actually see any virtue on the other side of the ledger. We can't. And like, if you see virtue, if you at all applaud, whoa, betrayal, Benedict Arnold right there. And so one of the things that really attracts me about Roosevelt, and I dealt with this in the World War II series. If you listen through it, you'll hear me go through this many times. It's like, I'm not supposed to like this guy. But I, I actually do. One of the reasons I like him is because Winston Churchill liked him so much. And I really like Winston Churchill. Have I mentioned that my middle name is Winston? <laughs> and so my dad, you know, my, my grandparents' hero was Winston Churchill. My dad's name was Winston. He was named after Winston Churchill. He was born in 1942. I mean, at the exact time uh, that most of Winston Churchill's great things are happening. And then my middle name is Winston, right? So this is like this heritage, this passed along heritage. And Winston Churchill is going to become a good friend with a man named Franklin Roosevelt during World War II. And he is going to write about him. Now, Roosevelt is going to die before World War II ends. Now, sorry, that's not really a spoiler for this, the storyline. But, and he's gonna die in a way that I'm not supportive. He's gonna be having an affair uh, down in Georgia and he's gonna be having a painting done of himself. And I, so I have a message called The Unfinished Portrait, which is very provocative and profound to realize this man had serious issues in his life, 
But there are also strength points in his life that I want to admire what should be admired. I don't want to just throw everything out because I disagree with him politically or I think, well, that should have been done differently. Super Tuesday, 1932. It wasn't even close. This is actually possibly the greatest margin of victory up to this time in history. Look at this. Now, you've seen one of these political maps you know, during an election. Uh, the red mark the states that Hoover is going to carry. Uh, and if you saw counties, it's even more profound, guys. All the counties throughout the country are almost all blue, okay? And even the, even the states that Hoover's going to win, he's winning by just slight margins, like 1%. And so this is a landslide victory. But it's not just a landslide for the presidency, it's a complete overhaul of the government, which is going to change the course of American history. Nancy Gibbs in a Time article says, 1932 was a political realignment election. Not only did Roosevelt win a sweeping victory over Hoover, but Democrats significantly extended their control over the House, uh, U.S. House, gaining 101 seats and also gained 12 seats in the U.S. Senate to gain control of the chamber. Twelve years of Republican leadership came to an end and 20 consecutive years of Democratic control of the White House began. In Wikipedia, I know one of your favorite sources, until 1932, the Republicans had controlled the presidency for 52 of the previous 72 years, dating back to Abraham Lincoln being elected president in 1860. After 1932, which is the election we're talking about, Democrats would control the presidency for 32 of the next 48 years. So you're going to see a shift of our country. So much of what is happening in this time period that we're talking about is going to be the shift, which is going to take something that the Republicans had sort of just always had. The presidency is their territory. And ever since Lincoln, they had basically owned this territory. And since uh, Woodrow Wilson blew it in his uh, tenure, where everyone, most Americans would agree, okay, he didn't handle that well during World War I, it is going to swing strongly back to conservatism and to Republican presidency. And even though the House and the Senate might shift back and forth, the presidency was typically Republican. That was the safe way of doing it. That's how we maintain the way America has always been. And now that is all going to change. So poison presence of mind in crisis. Roosevelt is going to come in and he is going to administer something called the New Deal. And if you're a conservative, you're not supposed to like the New Deal at all, okay? It is going to alter the social construct of our, uh, of our nation. It's going to alter the way the government relates with the people, and, and the welfare state is going to be directly linked to that. And so we could give a round of boos to it. But one thing I can say about it, if I take off my political glasses, Roosevelt, when he got in there, was just like, whatever I need to do, I'm going to do it. And a lot of what he did was considered by the Supreme Court unconstitutional, but he still did it, and then it was considered unconstitutional as he did it. I mean, everything about it is like, whoa, massive overreach. This isn't how we do it in America. But the people of America are going to at least sense that they have a president that is willing to roll up his sleeves and say, whatever I can do. Now, what I'm going to be impressed with, this guy is going to walk through four uh, ten years as president. He's going to be president, voted president four times. I mean, that's just unprecedented, guys. That's extraordinary. And the weights he's going to carry, he's going to be president through the Great Depression and through World War II. And this man is going to have poise and presence of mind. Though I may disagree with some political policy aspects of his life, I have to admit he was a strong leader. And in the moments when you wanted a strong leader, he was a strong leader. And you could say, I thought he was in a wheelchair. I know. That's his secret of strength, guys. And that's part of the whole message is I want you to recognize what impresses me with this guy is his overcoming spirit. So I could say, where did this poison presence of mind in crisis come from? He wasn't weaker because of polio. Surprisingly, he was far stronger because of it. All right, guys, spiritual truth time. Each of us has a polio. Each of us has an ailment. Each of us has something that could crush our life, that would be an excuse for you to give way to self-pity. Every single one of us, if you would go through your life, you could circle it and say, where's your polio? 
something that you maybe didn't invite in, something that seemed to come on to you. It didn't have to be 39 when it happened. It could have been nine when it happened. It doesn't matter the age, but we have ailments. We have things that have brought shame to our life. We have th things that we wish we could get rid of. If we could get rid of something in our life, we could change it, it might be that. That's our polio. And how we handle our polio is the essence of if our life becomes a success or a failure. If our life actually is used by God to change the world or we subside into silence sucking our thumb in self-pity and we are the victim for the rest of our days. Roosevelt could have very easily been just the victim in this. What a blow to his dignity, his manhood. And he is going to retire from public life and he is going to spend a whole season of his life just recovering and trying to get his feet back under him, no pun intended. And something is going to happen in that time that is going to cause him to get his growl back, to say, I want this to be used instead of to be used against me. I want it to be used for what I'm called to. I actually highly regard that. When someone is willing to overcome a challenge in their life, a disability, a financial impediment, when you're born without the same privileges as everyone else, that's always one of our favorite stories. In American history, we love those stories, those overcomer stories of someone who's impoverished and somehow makes their way out of poverty. It's so hard to do. And when someone does it, wow! How about those stories of someone who doesn't have an opportunity for education and then they turn into one of these great minds in their generation? It's like, whoa, how does that happen? The George Washington Carver sort of line. Oh, that's amazing! These are the stories that we love. Why? Because they overcome. This is actually the essence of what the Spirit of God does in his people. Right there. He does not sit by and suck his thumb. That isn't what God does in a time of difficulty. He rises up. And if it's a quarter mile that you determine you're going to walk, you just start going after it every day. This is how we live as Christians. If you have something that is holding you down, you have the Spirit of God the growl of God to wake you up every morning and say, let's do this again. Come on, get out of bed. Let's go. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10 talks about this growl, this getting out of bed and recognizing that even in weakness, this is our great secret of strength. Our polio is actually our advantage. Did you just hear that? The reason you will have strength in your life is not because you have absence of difficulty. It's because that difficulty was leveraged to bring about a great strength in your life. And I've used this illustration many times, but it's, it's definitely uh, fitting for this situation, and that is weights, like in a weight room or a gym. If any of you are athletes, you know that to actually build strength, you need to encounter difficulty. You need to have strain. You need to resist and so if I threw, if I laid you down on a bench and I put a barbell on top of you and you didn't know what it was for, you're just like, oh, oh, I got this heavy thing on my chest. Yeah, it could crush you and break a rib. It would be rather miserable. Or you could fix your hands on that bar and push it. And when you do, you would find that it engages your muscular side and actually animates it. And this is how you get strength is not by avoiding difficulty, but by embracing it. When you embrace your polio, instead of cower before it, it actually will make you stronger. I would say one of my premise points in studying the life of FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, is that he is a great president because of his polio. I don't know that I would be sitting here complimenting him at any level, because I already don't like his policies, right? But I wouldn't be complimenting him at any level if he didn't have this that I'm describing right now, which is a direct result of him overcoming his impediment. So listen to Paul speaking about his impediment. Paul had an impediment. It's called a thorn in his flesh. Paul says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, this thorn, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. 
For when I am weak, then I am strong. So this impediment, this polio that Paul is going to encounter is actually the secret avenue that God is saying, I give you grace when you receive that challenge. So to the degree that you have a thorn, to the degree that you have an impairment, to the degree that you have a disability, to the degree that you have a financial shortfall, to the degree that you have a challenge, you get a greater measure of grace. And that greater measure of grace is your great strength in life. You want to win this thing called life? Cherish your thorns. The very thing that the enemy is trying to come against you and discourage you with is the very thing God will leverage to encourage your life. What can polio do for a man? So I'm going to give you a story of a guy named Maxim Litvinov. So this is a strange story for me to bring up, but this is sort of a picture, because it's really hard in a, in a summary to tell you why I sort of like FDR, even though I'm not a supporter of maybe his policies, right? I mean, that's a hard thing to say. And the story of Maxim Litvinov is one of the reasons why when I was studying World War II, I was pausing, going, wow, that is, I really am supposed to not like this guy, but why do I keep liking him? So January 1st, 1942, I know we're, we're not in our timetable as we should be. I mean, suddenly we're just like forward 10 years uh, out of nowhere. We just like went forward 10 years. We're in the presidency of FDR and we're in the middle of World War II. December 7th, 1941, uh, a day that will live in infamy. That's a famous speech by Roosevelt. Uh, just a little bit before this, okay? So this is just less than a month after that, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, by the way, if you don't know where that speech comes from. And so America is now entering the war, and we are going to form something called the Grand Alliance, where we are going to create an alliance with Great Britain and with the USSR. Technically, there's 22 other nations that are going to be part of it, but we understand the Grand Alliance or the Allies uh, in World War II are going to form uh, on this day, January 1st, 1942. So here's a character, Maxim Litvinov. In 1939, this man was the second most powerful man in Soviet Russia outside of Joseph Stalin. So we're talking about a major player in the communist movement. And uh, so this is 1939. Now remember, we're in 1941, or 1942, January 1st, 1942, in, in where we're talking. But he was the most powerful, second most powerful, but something is going to happen. You see, he's a Jew. Now, remember what's happening. Uh, Germany is not pro-Jew. Uh, there's something that they're very anti. They're anti-Jew. And Stalin wants to make an arrangement with Hitler for peace. And so Litvinov would have been the guy negotiating the peace. And Hitler will not talk with a Jew. So Litvinov is going to be sacked. He's going to lose his power position in the communist government. And now he's just going to be a foreign ambassador that's going to be used in 1942 to come to America to negotiate this. So it's not that he's you know, a nobody, but he has lost his high position. He has been demoted in a very significant way. So he is a Jew, a very inconvenient fact, mind you, when attempting to negotiate peace with Nazi Germany. Winston Churchill says this, the president was wheeled into me on the morning of January 1st, 1942. I got out of my bath and agreed to the draft. He's all, in his memoirs, he's always getting out of the bath. He's always in bed, you know, signing papers. It's, it's somewhat awkward. Both Roosevelt and Churchill are always in bed or in the bath, okay? I, and you could, I don't know if there's an edited version of their memoirs. It skips that, but it's all over the place, right? So sorry that I put it on the screen here. Uh, I got out of the bath and agreed to the draft. Now I even read it twice. The declaration could not by itself win battles, but it set forth who we were and what we were fighting for. Later that day, Roosevelt, I, Litvinov, and Sung, representing China, signed this majestic document in the president's study. It was left to the State Department to collect the signatures of the remaining 22 nations. This is a huge moment in history, right here. This is what's called the Grand Alliance. Winston Churchill says this. He, Litvinov, was invited to luncheon with us in the president's room on purpose. Churchill and Roosevelt are going to see this man, a communist Jew, and they're going to set apart a luncheon on this massive day in history, and they're going to purposely meet with a guy named Litvinov. Winston Churchill says it this way, the president had a long talk with him alone about his soul and the dangers of hellfire. 
The accounts which Mr. Roosevelt gave us on several occasions of what he said to the Russian were impressive. Indeed, on one occasion, I promised Mr. Roosevelt to recommend him for the position of Archbishop of Canterbury if he should lose the next presidential election. That's classic Winston Churchill humor. What can polio do for a man? It can supply an extra sensitivity toward those around you with injury, impairments, and shame. When you have a polio in your life, what does it do? It helps you see others that have a polio. And Litvinov doesn't have paralysis of his legs. He has paralysis of soul. This man has been rejected in his country. This man has been demoted from the highest positions to a nobody, is the way it feels to him. His country is rocked him, where he doesn't know what is true. He's always been a communist. He's always been an atheist. But now he's in this bubble territory where he doesn't know what is true. And Roosevelt is going to see that. He's going to see the polio in Litvinov. And he is going to, on this massive day in history, actually take Litvinov aside and spend a significant amount of time with him sharing I know, this is hard for us to imagine, especially as conservatives, that a liberal would actually share the gospel with someone. You follow me? When I say this is the man I'm not supposed to like, there are reasons why I, I struggle. I'm like, well, but I like that. And you know, maybe his gospel was a little more weak and limpid than it should have been. I don't know. I don't have any way of... The fact that he's even talking about hellfire is very unusual for a liberal, guys. This is shocking to me. And so you should have seen me trying to study this in World War II. I'm like, I, go, well, I don't even know how to swallow that one. Because Litvinov is a communist. We're not supposed to have anything to do with him. I mean, even the fact that the communists are in the Grand Alliance, you have to admit, this is really hard for us historically. It's like, what are we siding with Stalin for? And yet you could say, well, to fight Hitler. Well, okay, well, I want to fight Hitler, but what are we fighting with Stalin for? It's a really good question. Litvinov. Who is Litvinov? He's a guy that you have been told to very much dislike. He's a communist, a leftist, a socialist, a Marxist. How are we doing so far? You guys starting to really curdle against this man? A friend of Lenin, a servant of Stalin. I don't know that I said anything positive in that whole list. That is a lot of bad right there. And yet Roosevelt is going to go out of his way on purpose to set aside his day on a very, very important day of his life and go after this man's soul. Litvinov, we could call him an undesirable friend. Litvinov, we could call him the soul most likely to be missed amidst the cacophony of war. When you're dealing with all of life's business, who has time for Litvinov? Actually, you know, as I'm saying all this, it is so surprising to me that, first of all, I'm even putting this in my series. I mean, what, what am I bringing out this? Litvinov, what does he have to do with anything? What is Roosevelt? Why are we talking about him? And yet, the reason is, is we are inclined and have been trained to dislike anyone who is of a different orientation than we are. And I would like us to actually nip that in the bud and deal with it. It is not saying that you should vote for Roosevelt. That isn't the point. It isn't saying that you should overlook the fact, hey, that guy had an affair. This guy trucked in a whole bunch of junk into our country. I mean, hey, I'm not going to argue that there are definite mishaps in the process and definite lapses of judgment and things that shouldn't have been done in our country. I get that. Litvinov, the symbol of the one that Jesus never overlooks. Jesus is going to go out of his way talking about a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. And even though that lost son is going to get embroiled in pig slop, the father still longs for him to come home. And there's something there that is very, very important for us not to forget in our American history that we have stopped longing for those that are opposed, those that have gotten themselves in pig slop to come home. Litvinov, listen to what he's described as. He is the communist Jew. Can you think of a worse description in the midst of World War II? You know that the number one target of Hitler was the communist Jew. That's actually what he was after more than anything else. 
So it's the very thing Hitler was laboring with fiery vengeance to exterminate from this earth. And yet, if you were to think about it in history, that isn't a very good combination. I mean, you in here, you love the Jews, right? But the communist Jew? I mean, guys, that's a little much to ask us to love the communist Jew or to spend any time going after the communist Jew. Communist Jew deserves what he gets. Or at least that's what we've said. The communist Jew, the very thing Roosevelt and Churchill are seeking to win for Christ. What an odd turn of story. We weren't expecting that. Polio robs, yes. When polio comes into your life, it robs. The enemy comes to seek, uh, he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's what he comes to do. He is a ravager. But But our God will turn what the enemy is meaning to harm us into a profound picture of his glory. He takes all things and turns them and means them for good in our life when we're called according to his purpose. This is his way, that even though the enemy might use it to destroy us, God uses it to build us. So polio robs, yes, but in that theft, there is a heavenly supply given to the soul that is much greater than that which has been taken away. You can rejoice anytime you're robbed from, because God restores what the locust eats. And when he restores, it's not one for one. It's like four for one, 10 for one, 100 for one. God's restoration package is, is totally ridiculous, truly. Just imagine if you were stolen from and you rejoiced. And someone could say, why are you rejoicing? Because I know that God is going to restore this unto me in a greater measure. It'd be like the ultimate investment campaign. You'd almost want to stick your money out on the corner of your counter, you know, and put a sign and say, crooks, please come in. I have money on the counter. Why? Because you would know that when something is taken, you get four times more. It's like, there's no investment campaign out there that could match that. Our lives are not victims We are not victims to a system. We are the pictures of triumph in this world. And the way we handle the Litvinovs, and get this, the way we handle the Roosevelts in our life, the way we handle them must be different than the way Hoover handles them. We are not a political machine as a church. We are lovers of those that Christ gave his life for. That is our motivation. The heart of God. So in 2 Kings 6.5, there's a story about an accent. And in 2 Kings 6.15, just a few verses later, you're going to see one of the most epic stories in all of history. So this one prophet's like working with an axe uh, to build this little prophet's uh, house, and the axe head goes flying off, and the character goes, alas, master, speaking to Elisha, you know, it was borrowed. And I, to be honest, you know, we were to look at the story and be like, uh, who cares? Just save up money and buy him a new one. Literally, that's, that would be a reasonable response. But Elisha is going to throw a stick in the water and it's going to cause that axe head to float. Of course, a picture of the work of the cross. That The cross will even address the smallest things in our life. And then 10 verses later, you have one of the most epic scenes where the, the Assyrian army is surrounding Elisha and his servant. And the servant says, alas, master, what shall we do? And he says, Lord, open my servant's eyes that he would see. You know, there's a mountains full of horses and chariots of fire all around. And Elisha, with one word, blinds the entire Syrian army. Extraordinary stories, right? Ten verses apart. And in, the same is true in our life. God wants to do big things in our life. But in the process of doing big things, he doesn't want us to overlook the axe heads. He doesn't want us to miss the small things. In the midst of the Grand Alliance, Roosevelt is going to be caring for the soul of Maxim Litvinov, one who would be deemed the arch nemesis of America. Truly, the communists are not a friend. I mean, yeah, we'll work with them to stop Hitler, but they're not our friends. And yet, this is who Roosevelt's going to pursue. So the reason I I say all of this is to create the understanding as we go through this series. I truly am not trying to just be conservative or liberal. I want to be Jesus. And I want to see history through the lens that he would want me to see it or that we should be seeing it. That we may not agree 
with different things that are happening in the world or even with what's taking place in different politics, but don't hate the person. Go after the person. How many of us spend time praying for the souls of those that are having designs against us as the church of Jesus Christ? But that's what Jesus does. So the axe head is like Litvinov, and the horses and chariots are like the Grand Alliance. God sees this one man's soul in the midst of this worldwide crisis. Here's how we're going to finish. There are a whole bunch of people out there that you are being told to dislike. And here's my conclusion. You could love them instead. I don't want us to fall for this. It is a movement against us as a church in this country to politicize our thinking as opposed to looking at people as a child of God. I don't want to be evaluated based on my political stances. I mean, that's not the way I want God to view me. I want him to view me as a man who believes in him, who trusts him, and that is the core of how God relates to me. Well, I want to have a similar lens, and I want to have that graciousness flow out of me. Father, teach us how to love those that are unlovely in the natural sense. Teach us how to love those that you love with your love for your glory, for your honor, and for your praise. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.